So I just want to mention before uh, we pray how incredibly proud I am of our church. Uh, as we brought the elders to all the campuses today to share a story or two about their experience with our church and year in giving. And then as we showed you that video earlier, just that real short one celebrating what God has done this year, you know, my initial thought is to God be the glory because he's the one working and moving and breathing in our church. But then, because I know we have to cooperate with his movement, I'm so grateful for all of you, all of you, and for the, uh, the, what you've done to help make this year amidst very trying circumstances a very, very special time that I think we'll look back and say only God. So thank you for all your cooperation with God and with your, your pastors in, uh, in being able to look back and say only God. Now, we uh, have a lot of work to do in the Word today. We're uh, discovering more and more about the Magi in this series that we're in right now. And so, uh, without further ado, let me pray for us, and then we're going to dive right in. God, our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your goodness and for your grace and for all that you have done and are doing amidst you know, rather difficult and even dark times. Uh, God, there's a lot of people hurting right now, but you are constantly moving, you're constantly uh, doing your work in our lives and circumstances do not stop you nor hinder you. And so God, I pray that as we delve a little deeper into that idea here today, this idea that we can prioritize you even in the midst of our very hurried and busy lives, even our, our jobs, God speak to us. Speak to us through these uh, people that showed up at Jesus's birth that nobody expected, these magi, and help us, Lord, to pattern our lives after these ones whose lives, as we're going to see, were so drastically changed from interacting with Jesus. So, God, we yield this time to you right now, and we do so in Jesus' holy and precious name. And we all say together, amen. So I want to begin today by asking a very simple question that I think many of you are going to answer either affirmative or not affirmative. Do you like or even love your job? Do you like or even love your job? Don't answer it out loud, just to yourself between you and God. Or if you're retired here today, do you, did you like or even love your job? I can remember talking to a dear friend back in Cleveland years ago. He's a good man, a devoted follower of Jesus, and the issue of his job came up. And he was a successful doctor, and he lived in a nice house with a nice lifestyle and a great family, and asked him at one point if he liked practicing medicine. And his answer kind of surprised me. He said, well, not really. You see, it's just a job. He said, I, I grew up in a family with not a lot of money, and I went to college and decided on a career that would pay well, but in the end, it's just a job to me. And I got to tell you, folks, I felt kind of bad for him because obviously <clears throat> I love my job. I went into the ministry because God radically saved my soul and I enjoy people, at least most of the time. And so my job is much more of a calling and even on my worst day and I have them, I would still rather do nothing else than what I do. But you see, I realized in talking to my friend years ago that not all people feel this way, and I've since learned that not even all pastors feel this way, which really blows me away. It was over 20 years ago that I went into the senior pastorate, and as many of you know, I first started pastoring in, in Canada back in 1999. 
And it was a big thing for the church there. They'd been out without a senior pastor for a few years, and they were very excited to have a young guy come in. And, uh, and so they installed me as the new senior pastor by inviting all the other pastors in town, especially of the denomination, to come and, and make this a big deal. And I'll never forget an older pastor who came up to me after the installation, after I had shared a few words, uh, this older pastor said to me, you're going to do really well here, young man. And I appreciated the compliment, and I said to him, well, thank you. And he said, and the reason is, is because I can tell that you like people. And I thought that was kind of an interesting compliment, because it seems so broad and so obvious. And I said, well, yes, I do. And I said to him, because I didn't know what else to say, I said, well, don't you like people? He's being a fellow pastor. And I'll never forget his response. He said, no, not really. <laughs> he said, I, I love God, I, I love the Bible, but if it wasn't for people, ministry would be a lot more enjoyable to me. And again, I felt sad for him because what gives me joy in my job, yes, is God, certainly, but also the people. Here's the good news. Most people like or even love their jobs. There was a wonderful study done a few years back, very recent study done by Pew Research on job satisfaction and job security. And what they found actually kind of surprised me a little bit. They found that just about half of American workers cite that they are very satisfied in their jobs. Very satisfied. And an additional third, about 30%, cite that they are somewhat satisfied. So just in the last few years, Americans cited about 80% of them that they are somewhat or very satisfied in their jobs. Then they moved on to job identity. And this is what really surprised me. They found that over half of employed Americans say they get a sense of identity from their jobs. And only 30% of them agreed with my friend years ago that the job is just a job and it doesn't really give them any satisfaction or even any identity. So no matter how you slice it, uh, more than three-quarters of the people find satisfaction in their job, and, and much more than half find identity in their job. That's good news, because as we're going to see today, God invented work in great part for us to find satisfaction and joy in it, even a sense of identity, now watch this, once we submit it to him. As we continue our Christmas series this year entitled Jesus is Better, I want to talk with you <clears throat> about our work and our jobs. Because you see, these magi that we are focusing on, these wise men from the East who visited Jesus at his birth, actually teach us some critical things about God and our work, some life-giving things, some life-altering things that can make all the difference. So let's very briefly... Uh, review these magi. Let's very, very briefly review them. Uh, Matthew 2 verse 1 says this. It says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. And we spent a lot more time on this last week. So if you need to review last week, then, then it will give you more detail. But we noted four things very, very quickly. That they are magi, secular religionists, 
that they are, they came as a plurality. Uh, the Christmas cards show three, but it could have been anywhere between two and 12. It just says magi, the plural came. Uh, they came from very far away. We'll explore that more in a minute. They came from the far east, so they weren't Jewish. They certainly weren't Christian. They were secular religionists, and they had a private audience with Jesus meaning they came a few days after the birth of Jesus and they got a, a private sit down with Mary and with the baby Jesus. And so last week we noted that these magi from the east had brought valuable treasures with them and laid them down before Jesus. That was the whole point of last week. They laid down their gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They literally opened up their treasure boxes in front of Jesus and gave over their stuff to him. And we ended last week by noting that you and I should do the same, that when we have the courage to lay our stuff before Jesus, he will help us discern when we should enjoy it, when we should share it, and when we should give it away. And as usual, good stuff from God's word as it guides us through this historical look at the magi at Jesus's birth. Now, I know how some of you might be thinking right now. You're thinking, well, Jamie, that's really good stuff on the Magi and the treasures that they brought because that seems to be the heart of the story. But what does any of this have to do with our jobs and our work? How does that fit in with the Magi at Jesus's birth? And this is a good question and one that will require us to look a little further into the lives of these Magi because when we do, this can become a true aha moment for you. Let me show you what I mean. As you might remember, these magi <coughs> from the east probably came from what is now modern-day Iraq or Iran. This is what most scholars think. So this is a color-coded map of the current modern east. And you'll notice that this little green country right here is Israel, where most of the Bible stories take place. And this is where Jesus was born, somewhere right around here, Jerusalem just south of there, Bethlehem in Israel. Now when it says that the Magi came from the east, what most scholars assume that means because of just a lot of details that the Bible gives about visitors from the east way back then in the Old and New Testament, it would have been in Babylon or Persia back then, which is now modern-day Iraq or Iran. So as you can see on a map here, they came from real far away in the east, somewhere over here, which would make them either Babylonian or Persian in descent. There's some scholars that disagree with that. Some say, no, they, they came more from this part of the east here where modern-day Jordan is, some argue Petra or areas like that. But either way, it doesn't really matter. What they're suggesting is, is that they came from a faraway place in the east. And this sets us up for our very first observation about the magi and their jobs that are gonna help you and me center in on what they teach us here, and it's this. Here's the first observation, and that is that the magi had to set aside their jobs in order to find Jesus. They had to set aside their jobs in order to find Jesus. Think about it. They had jobs back in the land that they came from. As we're going to note more in a minute, they were secular religion leaders from a faraway land, most likely speaking into and giving advice and counsel to the secular leaders of these faraway lands. And the point is they temporarily put all this aside in order to head into the direction of the star that they would believe would lead them to Jesus. And of course, it did. 
Folks, don't miss this very simple but rather profound observation. These magi were not doing their daily jobs back in Persia or Babylon. Uh, they were seeking after Jesus. Geographically, that's why that map is so important, they were very far away from their homes and their jobs. And this is why Matthew makes a point in that passage we just looked at to say magi from the east came to visit Jesus. And why is this so important to note? Because it shows that they deemed Jesus and the pursuit of him as better than their jobs. And though I'm not suggesting that you and I should leave our jobs in order to seek Jesus, that's not necessarily the point. What you don't want to miss, however, is that conceptually, theologically, and practically, these magi saw Jesus as better than their jobs. And when push came to shove, they didn't mind setting them aside temporarily in order to seek Jesus. They laid their jobs down before him and put him First, there's going to be something in that for you and me. Now, hang on to that because it doesn't stop there. Because once we get that, the question then becomes, well, what happened after they found Jesus, right? What happened to their jobs after uh, they sought Jesus and found him? And this brings us to the second observation we need to make about the Magi and their jobs. And I'm just going to warn you, this one's really powerful. And that is that the Magi most likely altered their jobs to faithfully follow Jesus. Let me repeat that. This is a really important point to dial into. The Magi most likely altered their jobs in order to faithfully follow Jesus. Now, why would we say this? One of the things that I did this week is, uh, as I've said, fun. I told you last week I'm a dork when it comes to study. I just, I love to study. And I had some fun this week uh, delving more deeply into an historical understanding of the Magi. And the good news is, is that contrary to what many people might think, there's lots of information out there about these Magi. There's books written on them and scholarly articles and commentaries and things like that. And so I started reading a couple of books this week on the Magi and found it rather fascinating. And one particular book that I was reading called The Mystery of the Magi by a scholar named Dwight Longenecker uh, gave me some good information about who these Magi are and were that might help us understand uh, just a, a little bit more about them. So let me just share with you a couple of, of Longenecker's words about the Magi, and you'll begin to catch on. He, he said, the Magi began hundreds of years before Jesus as tribal shamans, soothsayers, astrologers, and medicine men. He says, the Roman historians Pliny and Tacitus associated them with sorcery and magic. So we've already noted that in a very real sense in this series. Uh, last week, that, that these magi were secular religionists. They, they did sorcery and magic. It's where we even get the English word magic from, this idea of the magi. Now let's read on. He, he says, religion for modern people is a mixture of prayer, worship, faith, and good works. He says, we think of religion as a set of doctrines to be believed and commandments to be obeyed. Ancient pagan religion, however, had little to do with creeds or moral codes. He says, for the ancients, religion was about appeasing the gods and using arcane knowledge, magic, and wisdom to predict the future and guarantee good fortune. 
So what is he saying there? He's simply saying that these magi function very different than a pastor would as a rabbi would. They they weren't into creeds and doctrines and things you actually believe. They they were practitioners who who basically focused on, on things that were kind of very foreign to us in order to find and appease God. I love how Longenecker wraps this up. He says, the Magi were, if you like, the Dumbledores, the Merlins, and the Gandalfs of their day. And, and many of you can relate to that. You've seen the Lord of the Rings or other movies like that. And so you're thinking of, of the old time wizards and what have you. That, that, that's what these Magi were like. Longenecker goes on to note that these magi would use things like, and this is kind of gross, but they'd use things like examining animal entrails and dream interpretation and studying the stars to apply their religion. So they would basically study the creation in order to try to understand the creator. And the book of Romans would eventually comment on this. This is kind of important, not positively. In talking about these man-made religions, look at how the book of Romans would comment on this. He, it says, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature or creation rather than the creator. In other words, the Bible makes it really clear that God is not found in stars or animal entrails or human-based wisdom. No, that's worshiping the creation. He's found in his revelation in Jesus and in his revelation in the word of God. And folks, that's the point. The jobs that these magi had were not at all conducive to the faith that Jesus came to bring into this world. If ever there was a mismatch, I'm telling you, this was it. And yet before we get all judgmental about that, here's what you need to know. And this is the point of the Magi being at Jesus' birth. This was exactly the kind of people that Jesus came to attract to himself. As we've noted, he calls people who are seemingly far away from himself, even people who have significantly strayed from God's original creation design to himself. And yet, as we also know, once they come to himself and choose to embrace Jesus, he then asks them to faithfully begin to follow him and even to change. The Bible calls that repentance. And so it would not be too much of a stretch to assume that these magi had a choice to change or not, and it would not be too much of a stretch to assume that they started down that road. Because we have evidence that this is precisely the process that was begun with these secular religionists known as the Magi as they interacted even with the baby Jesus. Now look at how Matthew would record this. This is very interesting. Matthew says in Matthew 2 verses 10 through 12, and this is the, the very ending of the whole story of the Magi. This is the last words about the Magi. He says, when they, the Magi, saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly and with great joy. And after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening up their treasures, they presented him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. So there's a lot actually going on here that you don't want to miss. Four things that when you add them together, kind of show us the spiritual machinations, the the spiritual journey in initial form of these magi who had their own religion but were about to confront Jesus. Notice that it says that they first rejoiced exceedingly 
with great joy. I, I plumbed the depths of that little phrase a couple of years ago when we talked about the Magi. I did a series called Joy at Christmas, so you can get that December of 2018 when I did a single message on the Magi here. But just suffice it to say that that's a very powerful way of just talking about happiness. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So they were so fired up, more fired up than you and I could ever get at a football game or about a new car or something like that. They were just absolutely fired up. They were, they were brimming over with joy on a spiritual level for what was about to take place and what was going to take place. They came into the house and saw the child, Jesus, and as we saw last week, they fell to the ground and worshiped him. So they, they knew right away, this ain't just a regular child. This is not just human being. This is Jesus here, and he needs to be worshipped because this is God come in the flesh. They had to have made that assumption because you didn't worship anything but a deity back then. And then notice the third thing going on here, and this is kind of powerful, is that after they rejoice and then worship Jesus, they are warned by God in a dream. Why is that important? Because God is speaking to them. God is now speaking to these, these magi from the East whose religion is all based on man-made stuff and all this. And God is meeting them now as they're confronting Jesus in a dream. And he speaks to them. And then don't miss finally that they obeyed God. He said, don't return to Herod because Herod's going to try to kill the son of God. And so they left for their own country by another way. And so though we have no other evidence than this, the story ends right here with no other mention of them in the New Testament, it does seem to me, and you be the judge, that these magi are demonstrating the initial and hopeful steps of following Jesus. And I don't think it would be too much of a stretch to say that they're actually being changed by him. And even as they followed through with all of this, and there's no reason to think they didn't, I have to believe that at some point they would evaluate their previous religious assumptions and alter their jobs in order to follow Jesus, just like some of us have had to do. And this is not too much of a stretch for you to imagine. You're not a secular religionist, I don't think, from, from modern-day Iraq or Iran, but you have a job. And there are some, if not many of us, that when we came to Jesus, we had to alter the way that we do our jobs. <laughs> some of you were rather irresponsible on your jobs, and now that Jesus is in your life, you've kind of upped the responsibility. Some of you did some things in your jobs that might be considered cutting corners. You're in sales and you lied a little bit or exaggerated things. And now that you know Jesus, you know you shouldn't be doing things like that. Some of us did actual jobs that now as followers of Jesus, we're gonna give up those practices all together. We can relate in our modern world to this idea of having to alter our jobs in order to follow Jesus. And though we have no idea what this looked like for the Magi, I'm guessing that they might have still worked in religion because that's all they knew. But now with the truth of Jesus as Lord and Savior come into this world behind them with God's true revelation, the Holy Spirit and even his word as revealed in the Old Testament, now the burgeoning New Testament, guiding them. They had altered jobs in following Jesus. So let's add up where we have come to, because we're going to apply this to our lives in just a minute here. But when it comes to what these magi teach us about Jesus and our jobs, it's rather robust. 
The Magi set aside their jobs in order to find Jesus. They literally had to, to leave them aside for a little bit in, in order to prioritize Jesus. And then they most likely altered their jobs to faithfully follow Jesus. Here's the simple point in case you haven't caught it. They laid their jobs down just like they did with their treasures before Jesus and only picked them back up as they learned what following him was about. And that is a hand-in-glove fit for you and me today. That as we receive and embrace Jesus, he's going to say something to us about our work. He's going to reveal to us in his word what God says about work, and in only laying our work down before him, can you and I do and embrace what he says about our work in his word? Just like the Magi who laid down their jobs in order to follow Jesus. They set them aside for a time and then they probably altered their work in order to follow him. And only then did they discover the true work God had for them. You and I have to do the same thing that they did. And so bouncing off what these Magi show us here, I wanna share with you in our time remaining uh, some things that you're going to find very life-giving that the Bible says about our work and our jobs. This is a great way to apply what the Magi show us here. And again, I'm not going to kind of explode this into more of a full-orbed biblical understanding of our work, but the point is until you submit to Jesus, you can't receive the things I'm about to share with you. I mean, you might be able to intellectually understand them, but you can't really embrace them in your heart because you need his help as we're going to see to apply these things into your life. Now, I, I, I had some fun with some alliteration this week. I, uh, I'm, I'm following uh, the alliteration of F in, in trying to communicate all of this to you. So hopefully you'll be able to remember it. So I'm going to give you all three up front. Here's what the Bible says about our work and why it's important that we lay it down before Jesus. And that's the Bible's going to tell us work is fun and fruitful. Work is also frustrating <laughs> and futile. And that Jesus is first and forever. So for words beginning with F, let's not call them four F words, four words beginning with F that you want to remember, fun, fruitful, frustrating, futile, first, and forever. Let's explore these briefly because this, this is important to our lives today. First, notice with me that work is fun and fruitful. Uh, the Bible makes this one really, really clear. So look with me at how the Bible describes how God designed work to be. Psalm 128 verse 2 says this. I love this. It says, when you shall eat of the fruit of your hands, you will be happy and it will be well with you. There's a lot going on in this verse, but I, I, I love some of the things it's saying here. It, it, it's saying that, that when you and I use our hands or our minds or whatever, when we do our work and we experience fruit from that, we're going to be happy. That's God's design. We're going to find some happiness in doing the things that God wants us to do. And notice with me, it's not just the fruit that makes us happy. We all get that, you know, back then in an agrarian culture, you would till the soil and it'll produce food and you get to eat the food and you're happy. But even today, as we don't live in an agrarian culture, we still work and figuratively till the soil and we experience fruit in our job and that fruit gives us happiness. It's also the process that makes us happy. 
So it's also saying that you should eat of the fruit of your hands when your hands are doing these works or your mind or whatever it is that, that you produce with, and you will be happy and it will be well with you. This is God's creation intent. And this goes all the way back to Genesis chapter two. I love this. Genesis 2.15, even before Eve was created, Adam's the only one on planet earth. And it says, then the Lord God took the man, Adam, and put him in the garden of Eden, here it is, to cultivate it and to keep it. So before sin even came into this world, God's original plan was to put mankind, Adam here representing all of mankind and eventually Eve, into the garden, this perfect place, and he wanted them to work. In fact, I love how the ESV, the English Standard Version, puts this verse. It says he put man in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Or I like how the King James says it. He put man in the Garden of Eden, this is good, to dress it and keep it suggesting creativity and fun. So even before the fall, when sin entered into the world, God's original creation design is that we will find fun and fruit in our work. And so maybe now you can see why earlier, when we started here today, I, I said I was so sad when my friend shared with me about his job and how it's just a job. Because though I get this, and that there are many people that do think like that, and even pastors, sadly, it's not God's original intent. He didn't make it so that we see it as just a job to make money. No, he wants us to find some satisfaction in our work. And here's the really good news that now brings us back to the Magi. And that is that as you have the courage to lay your job down before him, as you choose him over your work and begin to embrace his values and what he says about your work for your life, he just might help you who are struggling to find more creation joy in your work. I've seen God do that a thousand times. There's a great passage in Colossians. I don't have it up here on the monitor. Let me just read it for you that speaks to this issue. It says that whatever you do, so whatever you do, whatever your job is, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. Well, what's that saying there? I think it's saying a lot of things, but one of the things I think it's saying, because I don't think it's just an inheritance in heaven, I think it's saying that as you approach your job, whatever it is, and you approach it with, by submitting it to God and to Jesus, he just might do something in you to help you find that inheritance, that joy in it. I think that verse is saying other things, but I think it's also saying that. And it's letting you and me know that God is interested in your work. He's interested in things you do. And he wants you to find that creation intent in what you do. He wants you to have some fun in it and to be fruitful in it. But you gotta lay it down before him. That's the first thing the Bible says that we discover as we do life God's way when it comes to our work. And then notice the second thing that the Bible says, and that is that as much as work is, is fun and, and, and fruitful, it's also frustrating and futile. Now, let's wrestle with this a second, because at first glance, this seems almost antithetical to that first point, right? I mean, we just talk about switching gears fast. We just went from fun and fruitful to frustrating and futile. <laughs> and it almost seems antithetical, but, but it's really not. Don't miss this because the Bible is so rich, what it's affirming here are two sides of the same single coin. 
when it comes to our work. The fact that God designed work to be fun and fruitful, and that's still in play, but because sin has entered into this world and certainly into our lives, it now makes a mess of God's original creation design, and it's not gonna be completely fixed until eternity. And the Bible is really clear on this one about our work. I read you Genesis 2 just a second ago about how God put Adam in that garden to cultivate and keep it or to work and keep it or to, to, to have some design to it and keep it. I mean, we, we saw that. Look what happens after sin came into the world. <laughs> this is kind of revealing. It says in Genesis 3, then to Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the fruit of the tree about which I commanded you saying you shall not eat from it. Here it is. Cursed is the ground because of you. And in toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you. And you will eat, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face and your brow, you will eat bread until you return to the ground. So I put it there in yellow for you. It's pretty clear here. And again, it's an agrarian culture back then. You can translate it into the work we do today. But it's simply saying that as much as there will be fun and fruit in it, there's also going to be an incredible mixture of thorn and thistles and toils. And here's the point. There's going to be times where you're tilling the ground, whatever it is you do today for work, and it's not going to produce fruit. And it's going to be frustrating uh, to you because, again, that's the sinful fallen world that we live in, and it's affected even our work. And it also shows us how at the end of the day, in light of eternity and who God is, work is actually futile. This is what the author of Ecclesiastes grabbed on to in Ecclesiastes 2. He says, for what does a man get in all of his labor and in his striving for which he labors under the sun? Because all of his days, his task is painful and grievous. And even at night, his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. <laughs> Boy, some of us can relate to that passage. I know I can. And there's times when I'm bothered by the fact that I'm working like crazy and it doesn't seem to produce fruit. And I'm working like crazy and things are not cooperating. And I'm working like crazy and things are really difficult in my life. And I'm laying awake at night worrying and stewing and trying to figure out these things. The book of Ecclesiastes predicted that thousands of years ago. And again, I think most of us, when we're honest with ourselves and when we embrace a biblical worldview, what it's saying about our work, can agree with this point and own it. That there's an aspect to our work that is not just challenging. Everybody say, oh, work is challenging. No, frustrating. <laughs> Plans don't work out as anticipated. People do not cooperate. The land does not cooperate. Things break. Accidents happen. Miscalculations occur if you're an accountant. But we're tilling the soil, and it does not produce the fruit that we want at times. And again, in the end, it's not too strong to say that this does make work ultimately futile, at least in light of eternity. Because here's the good news. Heaven ain't going to be that way. Eternity isn't going to be that way. The curse is over. The curse is broken. And we're going to be in a perfect place where there's no more frustration with our work. So, so again, it's futile to think we're ever going to get rid of that this side of heaven here. And it makes our work, at the end of the day, feel at times kind of futile. And again, the reason that this view of work is so important, and the Magi teach us this, 
is that until you are willing to lay your life and your work down before Jesus, you'll never embrace what the Bible actually says about your life and your work. And so I love this second point here about our work because it just shows me the realism of the Bible and what God says about my life. And it sets me up for not getting too disappointed. I deal with many of you throughout the week who are just so disappointed and frustrated with your work. And again, I never say it to you like this because it'd be kind of heartless, but I want to say the Bible predicted this one thousands of years ago. It saw you coming a mile away and God in heaven is not surprised at some of the frustration you're experiencing right now. See, I, I, I don't get, I'm not saying I don't get disappointed, but, but I'm not devastated when my plans don't come to fruition. In fact, my wife would tell you my plans rarely come to fruition. And, and the reason is, is because I have a realistic view on what work and my labors are gonna produce. And sometimes they're gonna work great, and other times they're gonna be frustrated by the fall. The Bible is very realistic about that one. So work is to be fun and fruitful while simultaneously being frustrating and futile. And so what do we do with this? What does this mean? And what does this teach us and show us? And how does this apply to the Magi? One final point and then we're done. And that is that it points us to the fact that Jesus is to be first and forever because he is that way and he's to be that way in our lives. You see, this is what the Magi experienced. I know we've been on a zigzag journey here this morning, forgive me for it, but this is rich stuff. But the Magi experienced this, that in light of their work that needed to be set aside in order to find Jesus and then altered in order to follow Jesus, that what they realized in this is that Jesus is a much better choice and that he is first and forever in everything and wants to be so in our souls if we're ever going to make sense of him and our work. So again, here's how the Bible states it very clearly and plainly in the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, Jesus is speaking and he says, I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So he's simply saying, I'm the beginning of the alphabet and I'm the last of the alphabet because that's the Greek alphabet, alpha and omega, like A to Z. And then he's saying, and I, I'm the first, of all of creation, I was there at creation. I, I'm part of the eternal trinity. And, and I'm going to be the last when all this is over. I'm going to be the one standing. And if you're following me, so will you. And, and he's essentially saying, so, so in that, why don't you follow suit and make me first in your life? And, and then Hebrews kind of says the same thing. I love this passage, Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So in a world of change and uncertainty, he does not change, and there's no uncertainty in him. He's your rock. He's your savior, and, and, and he wants to take priority even over your work. The simple point of this series is he's better. <laughs> he's better in your stuff. He's better in your work, as we'll see next week. He's better in your family. He's a better choice, and this stands as a clarion call, the magi do, for you and I to stay close to him as we go about our work. Because as you submit your work to him, as you embrace his values for work, he will help you to find some fun in it and to be fruitful in it. He wants you to experience the creation intent. But he's also gonna help you be realistic about it and realize that there are times it's gonna be frustrating and even futile in the end. He'll help you make sense of that. 
And he'll give you hope even in the midst of that. Why? Because he'll remind you that he is first and he is forever and that Jesus is always, always a much better choice. Who would ever thought that these visitors from the East could teach us things like this? But they do. Because God uses them as he uses us to teach things and make the foolish wise. Would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, thank you for this teaching uh, from the Magi and from their lives as they had to lay aside their jobs in order to find Jesus and then alter their jobs in order to follow Jesus. God, thank you that we can glean that for our own lives today. Lord, if I don't miss my guess, there's not one of us here today, even if we're retired because we're still doing some work that isn't interested in what you might want to say about our work and how helpful we find the Bible, God, to be. When it tells us that you created work to be fun and, and, and even fruitful, but that, Lord, we experience it at times as frustrating, even futile, and that's very realistic because the Bible predicted that. But that at the end of the day, Jesus is first and forever, and he's our choice because he's much better. And Father, I pray as we add all that up and apply it to our lives, God, Help us to experience what you want us to in our work. And more than anything, help us to experience Jesus. May we be like the Magi and maybe go home by another route <laughs> with exceedingly great joy in our hearts. Thanks for this season. We pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.